So we're in Dublin and it's September 8th, 2010. And we're looking at Krishna's qualities, part two. So yesterday we talked about Krishna's opulences, why we should study Krishna's qualities. Anybody remember what were our reasons for studying Krishna's qualities that we discussed yesterday? There's another reason which we didn't discuss yesterday as to why we should meditate on Krishna's qualities. And that is explained by Krishna himself in the Bhagavad Gita, in the eighth chapter. Maybe you could, could you remind Shamananda that we have the handouts for today? If you could print those out, because we got so busy with the Russian visa application, you probably forgot. So there's an explanation in the Bhagavad Gita in the eighth chapter and also in the 13th and 15th chapter about what is the process of reincarnation. So the way that reincarnation works is that we get bodies according to our desires. Our desires as exemplified or as manifested in two ways. First of all, what we do during our life shows what we desire. Like if someone says, I really want to be a medical doctor. That's my desire. Now we only take that seriously if the person takes courses in biology and chemistry and applies to medical school and studies hard. So what a person wants is shown by what they do. And what they do indicates what we really want. Does that make sense? So if you want to know what does a person really want in life, you pay attention to what they do. So we call that the law of karma. Karma literally just means action that whatever you do has a reaction. Basically, whatever you do gives you what you want. So it's not just what you say you want, it's what you do. So that's what gives us another body, how we behave. And then the other thing that gives us another body is what we think about at the time of death. And this is explained in the eighth chapter. Okay. Krishna says, yam yam bhapi smaram bhavam twaja jante kalepam Whatever you think about at the time of death, that's what kind of body you attain in your next life. You might say, well, why is that so important? So I give this example a lot, that one time my students and I were out on a field trip. You all know what a field trip is? And on the way back, we saw a lot of black smoke in the sky, and the kids said, oh, let's go see what that is. And when we stopped by, we saw it was an apartment complex, I often wonder when I'm in foreign English-speaking countries if my vocabulary makes sense. Do you know what an apartment complex is? Okay. Sometimes people do not. <laughs> they don't understand what you're saying. I find it's often the most confusing when you're in another English-speaking country and you assume you speak the same language, but it's not exactly the same language. We've got lots of international American television, so we're okay. Okay, great. <laughs> in fact, in a lot of Europe, people tell me they understand American English better than British English because of American television and movies. So there was an apartment complex on fire. And when we, when the, after the fire engines put out most of the blaze and we could come close to it, we saw there was one young woman who was standing on the sidewalk barefoot with her young children. And when the, the fire had started in a neighbor's apartment, the neighbor had left grease on the stove. 
went to answer the phone, wall caught on fire, the fire went up the wall and burned down the whole building. So as this woman notices that her house is on fire, she does. She didn't take her shoes, she didn't take her money, she just grabs her children. So when your house is burning down, you're going to take what's most important to you. And that's the test of what's most important to you. If she had grabbed her money and left her children to die, and then she said, well, my children are the most important things in my life, we wouldn't believe her. So that's the... the, the Time of death is a test like that. Basically, our house is burning up. Our, our body, our whole identity in this life is being destroyed. And we will try to grab and take with us whatever is most important. So therefore, the time of death is the real test of what's most important to us in our life. So I can say, oh yes... Krishna is most important, spiritual life is most important. But at the time of death, I might think about my clothes, or my bank account, or my husband, or my child, or my dog, or something. And that really indicates where my heart is. That's the ultimate test. So that combines with my activities during my life. Because let's say, for example, I think about my house as I'm dying. So then I'm going to take, have a birth again in connection with that house. But depending on my activities might depend on what kind of birth. Am I born in the house as a human? Am I born in the house as a dog? Am I born in the house as a fly? You know, that depends on my actions. So those two things combine. My, what I'm desiring at the time of death and my actions. I, I heard of one devotee's father who had just won on the horse races. I mean, he was at the horse races and he had just won big I don't remember what it was, you know, like 100,000 euros or something, you know. It's like, I won, I won, Poof, fell over from a heart attack. Now let's say he was thinking about his horse. Would he necessarily become a horse? It depended on his activities. He might become a person who worked with horses, for example. Or he might be a fly on the back of a horse. You know, so those two things come together to determine our next birth. So what's most important to us in this life determines where we're going to go. I mean, when we look in the mirror and we think about our life, do we say, yes, perfect? I've asked many audiences, do you look in the mirror and say, yes, it's exactly what I want. <laughs> Nobody comes out with a yes. You know, or if you think about what kind of life you have, what family you're born in, you know, how much education you have, how much money you have, what kind of life opportunities you have. Is it exactly perfect? I remember many, many years ago seeing one of those Peanuts comic strips. You know the Peanuts comics? Charlie Brown. And so Charlie Brown's going for counseling to Lucy. And she said, Charlie, how would you like to live your life all over again? And he said, can I change anything? And she says, no, you have to live it over again exactly the same. And he went, ah! And he runs away. So unfortunately... This life that we have is the result of our own desires. Our desires have manifested in a particular body and a particular life. So if we'd like to have a different kind of life next time, then we need to cultivate different desires. And the ultimate life to have next time is our original spiritual life, after which there's no further reincarnations we return back to our original body. Well, that means that all of our desires have to be spiritual. 
And that's a body like Krishna. Not that we become Krishna. Just like if I meditate on my dog, I become a dog. I don't become my, that same dog. So if I meditate on Krishna, I don't become Krishna. But I get a body like Krishna. I get, again, my spiritual body. So the whole idea of Krishna consciousness, bhakti yoga, the essence of bhakti yoga, is to always think about Krishna. That's the essence. And everything we're doing when we're singing in the kirtan, when we're chanting on beads, when we're running a restaurant for Krishna, when we're, whatever we're doing that we're dedicating to Krishna, that's the whole idea is to always be thinking about Krishna, to change the nature of our desires. Our material desires, our material thoughts, build up a subtle body made of mind, intelligence, and ego. Now, modern science doesn't accept the existence of this subtle body. Modern science says that we are simply the gross body, and they say our identity is in the brain. However, this doesn't really make much sense there's a lot of evidence that people have an identity beyond the brain. I'm sure you've all heard of people who've had what they call near-death experiences or out-of-body experiences. You've all heard about it. Someone will be on the operating table in surgery. Their heart stops. Their brain stops. They're declared clinically dead. And then they somehow either come back to life five minutes or ten minutes later. And during that time, they talk about how they were up near the ceiling. And they describe what the doctors were doing. Some of them can even describe, like it could be that on the top of one of these light fixtures there's a little tag from the shop that nobody took off. And we can't see it from here, but if you were hovering at the ceiling, you could see it. So sometimes they report that kind of thing. Or they report what's going on in the next room. They report things that they, you know, even if someone says, well, if they were brain dead and their heart was dead, maybe somehow they were perceiving things. Which, of course, wait a minute, if my personality is the brain and my brain is dead, how can I be perceiving things? But they were perceiving things that they couldn't have known from the vantage point even of lying on the table. And sometimes those people even talk about going to other places, going even to higher realms and meeting celestial beings and so forth, having review of their life or even seeing past lives. There's many different... You're familiar with these kind of stories? So this shows that obviously there's something besides just the gross body. And there's so much empirical evidence of people who've had out-of-body experiences or near-death experiences that's been medically verified that it'd be pretty difficult to say. I mean, there's as much evidence for that as there is for any other scientific phenomena. That obviously we're not just the brain. There's also interesting stories of people who get brain damage, but somehow it doesn't affect their mind. I read about one girl who was literally born with half a brain. The doctor said she'd be retarded. She was totally normal. And they couldn't figure it out. You know, when she died, they also said that most of her brain just wasn't even there. And somehow she was able to function. So the mind is really not the brain. It's another body. And sometimes, you know, people can see ghosts. You've heard of that? Sometimes people can see ghosts. You know, when they're seeing ghosts, they're seeing this mental body, or sometimes it's called an astral body. And, you know, when they see a ghost, do any of you know what that ghost body looks like? Like, let's say you saw the ghost of Mrs. Smith who died last week. What would that ghost body look like? <coughs> do you know? Never heard any reports of people seeing ghosts. It looks like Mrs. Smith. It looked the way she looked in life. It looked like her body. So this subtle body has form. In fact, our gross body is situated on top of the subtle body. 
Just like, you know, we buy some clothing, like I had this sweater, or they called a jumper in Britain. I had this custom made, so it was made to fit my body. So in a similar way, this body is custom fit over my mind. So my mind has a particular form, and I get a body that fits it. And what is the mind made of? I mean, my body's made up of skin and bones and blood. And my mind is made up of what? What do you think our mind is made of? Thoughts. Thoughts and feelings, desires. So as we think certain things, as we desire certain things, we're building a mental body. We're actually constructing a mental body and then our gross body fits on top of that. Now, if our mental body starts to change, then the next gross body we'll get will be different. So if I, if I continue building up the same kind of mental body I have now, then the next life I have will be very similar. Then I'll get another body as a, you know, as a human female on the earth planet. But if I'm building up a different mental body, then I'll get a different physical body. If I'm building up a a mental body of a higher being, then I'll get a higher body, a demigod. Prabhupada translates the word deva or sura as demigod. In the Western culture, they're known as like angels. You know, if I'm building up a mental body of a, of a demon, I mean, in modern society, there are people who very much want to be demons. They're, they're piercing their cheeks and putting fangs coming out of their cheeks, and sometimes they implant horns under their forehead. Have you seen that? They do this kind of thing, you know. They tattoo their body to look like monsters, and they dress like, look, they want to look like a monster. Well, in other parts of the universe, there are creatures who look like monsters, so they get that kind of body. Or people who are developing the mental body of an animal. There was an advertisement in London of this woman wearing blue jeans, only blue jeans, and she's leaning over and drinking out of a river like an animal, and it says, we are animals. So people are propounding this. You know, that this human consciousness is really a botheration. Why not just be animals that can just have what, uh, like our brother Prahladananda Swami calls, spontaneous sense gratification. You know, you want to do something, you just do it. You want to mate with somebody, you just do it. You don't have to get married, you don't have to, you know, just whatever you feel like doing. You want to eat something, you just eat it. You don't consider, did I pay for it? Is it healthy for me? You know? So people who live like that, I'm hungry, I'll eat it. I want to have sex with that, I'll have sex with that. I want to do this, I'll do that. They're preparing a mental body of an animal. And then they'll take birth as an animal. So the spiritual science is you don't have any more material thoughts or desires. Now, if you didn't have any more material thoughts or desires, what would happen to the material mind? It's made of material thoughts and desires. If you stopped having any, what would happen to it? You wouldn't have any material mind. Yet. That's right. And if you have spiritual thoughts and desires, then you start growing the original spiritual mind and the original spiritual body. And the science of bhakti is that gradually one's spiritual body starts developing, even though we apparently still have this material body. Just like even in this life, if I start developing the mental body of an animal, I still externally have a human body. But gradually my human body doesn't really fit anymore. And then next life I get the body of an animal. So also in this life, 
I can start developing my spiritual mind and my spiritual body. My material mind dissolves. And then at death, I again regain my spiritual body. Even in this life, I will start acting in my spiritual body internally, which it may not be apparent to others. Just like all of your thoughts right now are not apparent to me. Correct? So if we, we developed your internal spiritual body, that's not obvious to others. But then you're actually living in the spiritual world, even in this life. So the main way to develop our spiritual thoughts and desires is to meditate on Krishna. Because our spiritual body is always in relationship to Krishna. Our spiritual body is, is really a manifestation of what particular way I want to serve Krishna. Like my material thoughts and desires are what particular way do I want to try to enjoy and exploit matter? What taste, it basically comes down to, what taste do I want to enjoy? What material taste do I want to enjoy? Do I want pistachio ice cream or strawberry ice cream or, you know, maple walnut ice cream? Mango ice cream? Or do I want pizza? Do I want pizza with eggplant? Do I want pizza with pineapple? Do I want extra cheese pizza? What taste do I want? And all the different kinds of material bodies are to give us different tastes, a different kind of enjoyment. There's a different flavor of enjoyment that you can get in a dolphin body than you can get in an ego body, or you can get in a human body, you can get in a male body, or you can get a female body, or you can get in a celestial body. And each one of those bodies is capable of a different taste of material enjoyment. So there's also different spiritual tastes, so depending on how I cultivate my spiritual taste. So it begins with a general spiritual taste that I want to be Krishna's servant. Just like our material body started with a general inclination, I want to be the Lord of Matter. And then, well, how do you want to be the Lord of Matter? Well, I think I'd like to be the Lord of Matter in strawberry ice cream. I think I'd like to be the Lord of Matter in pineapple pizza. No, I think I'll try, you know, this. So then it goes from general, I want to be Krishna's servant, to, oh, I think I'd like to serve Krishna in this way. And that comes not just from mental concoction, but from spiritual maturity and spiritual development. But the beginning is a general thing. I want to be Krishna's servant. Instead, I want to be the Lord of matter. And the only way to develop a general mood of I want to be Krishna's servant is I've got to meditate on Krishna. Why would I want to serve somebody? Why would I want to help somebody? unless I know them. Just like in, in this life, there's so many people or so many organizations that we've wanted to help. Isn't it? That we've gotten pleasure from doing something for. I want to give a gift to somebody. I want to spend my time with somebody. I want to talk with somebody. There's people I, I want to be friends with. Or there's someone I want to marry. Or there's somebody I want to work with and to get something done in the terms of work and employment. So I meet different people, and by getting to know them, I decide, oh, I want to serve them. I want to have something to do with them. So to, re again, regain our spiritual body means wanting to serve Krishna. So after Krishna says whatever, think about, whatever we think about at the time of death, we attain. He says, therefore, Arjuna, you should always think of me in the form of Krishna, and at the same time carry out your prescribed duty of fighting. With your activities dedicated to me and your mind and intelligence fixed on me, you will attain me without doubt. So, mam anusmaram yudhyacha. And say, okay, well, if I'm always supposed to think about Krishna and I'm not supposed to have any material thoughts, does that mean, like Arjuna first thought it meant, 
I should give up everything I'm doing, go to Vrindavan, and just chant all day. I'll chant 128 rounds of japa a day in Vrindavan, and I'll just think about Krishna. Well, first of all, for most of us, that we wouldn't be able to maintain that. Just on a practical level, after doing that for a few months, we think, I want to do something else. So that's a very practical problem. But in another sense, that's not even what Krishna is asking us to do. In fact, he told Arjuna not to do that. He said, no, Arjuna, you do whatever is your occupation in the world. At the same time, think of me. He said, you, you fight. And you just imagine, you know, we might think it hard to think of Krishna while we're washing the pots or while we're doing our accounting at work. But Arjuna told Krishna, think of me while you're fighting. You know, if somebody's trying to kill me, would I think about Krishna? So you're on the battlefield, you know, people are trying to kill you, and you're trying to kill them. It must require a lot of mental focus. But still, Krishna said, always think of me while you fight. And throughout the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna's emphasizing this, end of the ninth chapter and end of the 18th chapter. Good teachers always summarize, you know? So Krishna summarized in the 18th chapter. And at the very, very end, because what people usually remember is whatever you talk about at the end. Did you know that? Like I've noticed if I allow time for questions at the end, people will remember the questions and they'll completely forget the whole talk because whatever comes at the end. So Krishna put the most important things at the end and he repeats at the end a verse he had in the ninth chapter. Good teachers also repeat the most important points. And there's only a couple of verses in the Bhagavad Gita that Krishna repeats. And one of them repeated almost word for word is Manmana Bhava Mat Bhakto, Majahinan Mashli, Mamevastisatamte. You just think of me, become my devotee, worship me, offer your obeisances to me. In this way you will come to me. Right? So, how important it is to think about Krishna. And the verse that Srila Prabhupada quoted the most often is, anybody know what verse Srila Prabhupada quoted the most often? Hey, that's fantastic. You're the first person I met who knows that. How did you know that? I won't ask you. It starts off Maya Shakta Mana Prata. So Maya Ashakta. Maya Mi Ashakta with attachment. Mana. Think mind is mana. Think of me with attachment. So this is the essence of Krishna consciousness. As I said earlier, everything we're doing is for that purpose. Every every aspect that's done in the Hare Krishna movement. It has only one purpose, to always think about Krishna. Because if you always think about Krishna, all of your problems are solved. Everything's solved. The material mind dissolves, the spiritual body develops, and as the spiritual body develops and the material mind dissolves, our identification with matter ceases, and that's where all of our problems have come from. So this is another very good reason to think about Krishna's qualities. Because if I say, think about Krishna, how do I think about Krishna? Of course, we can always think about Krishna by chanting Hare Krishna. But Prabhupada would say many times that as soon as you chant Hare Krishna, immediately you think of Krishna's form and Krishna's qualities and Krishna's pastimes. Just for example, if we say, if I were to say the name of somebody who's dear to you, if I were to say the name of your mother or your child or your husband or your wife, immediately what would happen? You think of what they look like. You think of what they're doing, correct? Think of the last time you saw them, where they live, 
But it's natural. You don't just think of the name in isolation. So that be, that's impossible to do if you don't know anything about Krishna. Of course, because Krishna's name is the same as himself, even if you chant Krishna's name without knowledge, uh, those may manifest automatically. But it, it's interesting because devotees often say, well, should I think about Krishna while I chant? It's like saying, should I think about my mother while I say her name? It ought to come naturally. You know, if I say, how's your mother doing? You naturally start thinking about your mother. It's not that you have to think, okay, now I have to think about my mother. It just comes. But when someone's new to Krishna consciousness, they can't do that. I remember once uh, in New Zealand, uh, we were riding in a car back with, from a program, and there was one gentleman in the car. This was maybe his second or third time having anything to do with Krishna consciousness. And he obviously had no idea what Krishna was. He was just talking about, you know, the pulsating stars and black holes and thinking that that was Krishna. And I can see for somebody like that, you can't say, naturally you think about Krishna. All you can say is just chant Hare Krishna. Just chant Hare Krishna and listen to the sound. But as we learn about Krishna, we should be meditating on Krishna. We should be meditating on Krishna's qualities, not only as we're chanting, but all throughout the day. So we're going to look at uh, some of my favorite qualities of Krishna. And I did. Did anybody look in the nectar? Yes, you can pass that out. That would be a lovely time. Did any of you look in the nectar devotion? And You did. Okay. What quality? Well, I'll ask you first before I get into mine. What quality of Krishna did you find that you wanted to uh, meditate on? His flute playing. His flute playing. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. That's on my list. Did anyone else look in nectar devotion? Yes? Oh, okay. Well, I wasn't going to talk about any of those, so we could talk about those two now. So fluent is that Krishna knows all languages. I thought it was um, his speech, about the way he speaks. Oh, that he has very fine speech? Yes. What's interesting about that is that Krishna often speaks with double and triple and quadruple meanings. (laughs) And you know how, how much fun it is when you're speaking to somebody that you have a really close relationship with and you're, you're not saying exactly, you're sort of saying things in a covered way and they get it. And especially Krishna likes to do this in front of a third party that he doesn't want to understand what, what he's saying. So he does this a lot where he'll be talking to one person, there's another person there and each of those people are understanding different meanings. And there's many, many examples of this in the writings of the Goswamis, like Rupa Goswami, Jiva Goswami, Vishnu Chakrabadi Thakur. There's a lot of dialogue where Krishna is speaking to his gopis, for example, and one of the older members of the village is there, and he's telling the gopis where he's going to meet them later in the day, and it sounds to one of the older people that he's saying something else. So he's, he's very, very expert at doing that. And of course, Krishna speaks so charmingly that he can uh, enchant anybody. I think one of the most amazing examples of this is with Vrikasura. So Vrikasura had received a benediction from Lord Shiva that if he touched anyone's head, that person would die. The head would crack into a million pieces and the person would die. And as soon as he got this benediction, he went to use it on Lord Shiva, which wasn't very nice. And Lord Shiva started running away. And finally, Lord Shiva ran to the planet of Lord Vishnu in the universe. And then Lord Vishnu said, here, okay, you stay over here. And the Lord made himself look like a small student, a brahmachari, a young boy, 
holding Rudraksha beads, Shiva beads. And he goes up to Rikishur and he spoke to him so charmingly. He said, oh, you must be very tired, oh, son of Shakuni. Oh, you know my father? You know, if someone knows our family, immediately we like them. We think, they must be one of mine. Right? Like if you find somebody from your own country, immediately you feel some kinship with them if you're in a foreign land. Isn't it like that? Right? Those of you who are foreigners here in Ireland, if you find somebody from your country and you're that part of your country where you grew up, oh, you're from my hometown. Oh, really? You knew my father immediately. You feel that you can trust them. So Rikasura thought, oh, I can trust this. Here he's on another planet in another part of the universe and he's seeing this little boy and he thinks, oh, I can trust him. And then this boy said, please tell me why you're here. He said, he said why don't you just rest for a while? You know, your body's really important take care of your body and, and not stress it so much by running all over the universe. And the, the demon said, yeah. Right. Okay, I'll rest for a little while. So he stopped looking for Shiva. And he said, can you tell me your mission? He said, well, Shiva gave me this benediction. And then Lord Vishnu said, well, I don't know if you can believe Shiva and his benediction. You know, ever since he had that fight with Daksha. He's been in charge of the ghosts and hobgoblins. He's practically like a ghost himself. I mean, he really... I don't think you can put any faith in his benedictions. And Rikasura started going, yeah, you know, you're right. And then Lord Vishnu said, you know, I think before you try to test this benediction on anybody else, you should first see if it works because it might be really embarrassing if you go to test it on somebody else and it doesn't work. Just like I have something I'm going to show all of you tonight. And Just a few hours ago I tested it and I had to get it working properly. And I said, well, I'm glad I got it working properly before I showed it to everybody. And I thought, yeah, it's a good idea. He said, look, why don't you test it on yourself? And then you'll see it doesn't work. And then, and then he said, after, this was, was really funny. He said, after you test it on yourself and see it doesn't work, then you'll be able to kill that lying Shiva. <laughs> well, that was what he was trying to do in the first place. And he just thought, that's a really good idea. And he touched his own head, and that was the end of the demon, and Lord Shiva was saved. So Krishna is very expert. He's a very expert speaker. Of course, he spoke the Bhagavad Gita. And when you read the Bhagavad Gita, you're just amazed, isn't it? First time you read the Bhagavad Gita, you're like, wow, who spoke this? That was one of the first things I was thinking. Who is this Krishna that spoke this incredible wisdom? And what was the other one? Uh, controlled by love. That he's controlled by love. We talked a little bit yesterday about that the real power is love. Mm-hmm. So Krishna is the controller of everyone. He can control anything. But love controls him. Not because uh, he's forced. Because he wants to be controlled. It's very pleasant to be controlled by love. It's a very pleasant feeling. It's the most pleasant feeling that exists is to be controlled by love. To do something for somebody because you love them. It's, I was just thinking about how often, unfortunately, in families, this becomes twisted. You know, the husband or the wife will say, you're married to me, therefore you must do this. You should. You know, well, you're my husband, you're supposed to be helping me with the children. You're my wife, you're supposed to be washing the dishes. And as people think like that, as people think, you know, in terms of you should and you must, it destroys the relationship. You know, it just 
that's not the way we want to do things. The idea that we have of entering into family life, for example, is that I want to be controlled by love. I want to do things for my husband. I want to do things for my wife because I love that person. And I, my desire is that in that relationship with my husband and wife, that I'll continue to voluntarily want to do things for them out of love. If it starts becoming a feeling of I should and I must and I have to, then the whole thing becomes sour. But it's such a sweet thing to do something for somebody that I wouldn't ordinarily do out of love. I was talking to one of my friends whose mother was visiting, and we were talking about this idea of always doing things because I want to do them, never doing them out of obligation, that if I do something out of obligation, it's in the mode of passion, according to Bhagavad Gita. And she said, well, my mother's visiting, and she wanted me to go take her on a tour of the city, and I really didn't want to. I felt that I had to. And I said, well, why did you go? I said, you chose to go. It's not that anyone really forced you to go. Why did you choose to go? She said, well, I just wanted to make my mother happy. I said, then you weren't obligated. You were doing it out of love for your mother. So that's, if we, if we think about things like that, oh, yeah, I really don't, I don't have to take her to the tourist spots because I love her and I want to spend time with her and I want to make her happy. Therefore, I'm doing this for her. But it's, it, it's a really beautiful thing whenever we do that. Whenever we spend time with someone or give somebody something. My son-in-law's father recently lost his wife. You may know him. Shudikirti, has he been here to Dublin? So his wife recently died of cancer. And he was uh, telling me, he, uh, he told me this at the hospice before she died. He was saying how he really felt that she had been like the ideal wife. He said she'd just been what every man thinks of as perfect wife. He said, but when she got sick, he said, instead of her taking care of me and cooking for me and massaging my feet, all of a sudden I was taking care of her. And he said, and it wasn't pleasant taking care of her because her body was failing. I had to take care of her like she was a baby, you know, clean up after her. And, and he said it would, it would get so extreme, I'd think, I can't take this anymore. And then it would get worse. And then I think, okay, this is the most I can handle. And then that would get worse. And he said, I could barely stand it. And then all of a sudden I thought, well, I used to take care of Prabhupada because he was Prabhupada's servant for two years. And he said, if I think of her as Prabhupada's daughter and I'm her servant and I'm taking care of her, he said, then all of a sudden it became very sweet. And, I, and even though the work itself certainly wasn't sweet, you know, if someone's very sick and you're having to bathe them and change their diapers and and it's not like on the physical level, it's very sweet. He said, when I was doing it as service, out of love, it became very, very sweet. And all of a sudden I said, oh, this is my real relationship with her. Not as her husband, but as her servant, as someone who loves her. So I thought that was really nice. So that's Krishna's control by love. And Krishna, Prabhupada says, the devotee holds Krishna in the palm of his hand. That Krishna is willing to do anything for the devotee. And the devotee is willing to do anything for Krishna, of course. And there's, so there's a competition between Krishna and the devotee who can serve each other more. But there's no feeling of should and obligation. And of course, that reaches its pinnacle with the gopis. Because Krishna's relationship with the gopis has no externals of shoulds or obligations. Whereas other relationships have some, there may be some feeling like that. But with the gopis, it's entirely voluntary. No, no social media. So did anybody else look up anything in extra devotion? Before we go on to what I chose. We'll get to the food.
Okay, so I've chosen just a few of the qualities. 64 mentioned, of course, Krishna has unlimited qualities. The first one we're going to look at is grateful. And Rupa Goswami says, any person who's conscious of his friend's beneficent activities and never forgets his service is called grateful. So most people in this world are not very grateful. Have you found that? You know, you can do a lot for somebody. A lot. And if you just mess up one time, they tend to just remember your mess up. And they forget everything that you've done for them. It's unbelievable that very, very few people we do things for even know what we've done. What to speak of being grateful. They don't even usually notice what we've done. Maybe they just notice the end result. You know, maybe they just come and say, oh, this subji tastes good. But do people really think of, okay, you're getting, what time do you get in the kitchen in the morning? Six o'clock. Six thirty. All right. Do you do the cut up also, or do you have assistants? So you have assistants who do the cut up. Okay. And you're always having to make different things. You want the restaurant to have some variety and to be able to say to the guests, okay, this is something new. So that means trying out different recipes, and probably some of the recipes don't work out very well. And then you have to do something else, and maybe you have to do it at the last minute. And sometimes the gas runs out in the middle of the cooking, and you have to start over from scratch, and sometimes the person hasn't bought the right ingredients, or the cut-up person doesn't come on time, and nobody notices that kind of stuff. You know, people may just notice, oh, the subject tastes really good. But how many people notice the sacrifice? Right? And in, in most temples, there's a morning program still going on at 6.30 in the morning. But instead of that, he's in the kitchen. So this is true for all of our lives. Everything we're doing, you know, who notices these sacrifices and who's grateful for it? But Krishna notices everything. He notices all the sacrifices. And he's very, very grateful. He's grateful even for a little, a little, little sacrifice. Like in the early days of Iskand, when Prabhupada was speaking, he was in the, the Bowery, which was a, a place where they call it Skid Row, where like alcoholics were hanging out on the street, alcoholics, drug addicts, not a nice section of town. And one drunken man walks in as Prabhupada giving the lecture. He brought a roll of toilet paper and just walked right, you know, just opened the door, walked right through, stuck the roll of toilet paper in the toilet room, and then just walked out. And Prabhupada said, just see, he is not in order, but he has started his service. So even a little service like that, Krishna takes it as very grateful. You know, Prabhupada said if someone just appreciates the book, if they just see the Bhagavatam and say, oh, what a nice book. Krishna is so grateful that if someone says, let's go to the Sinarama, he takes it, oh, they've said my name. <laughs> and he becomes indebted to that person. So some examples of gratitude... One is uh, Sudama Brahmana. Sudama Brahmana was Krishna's friend at school. Then he became very poor. And extremely, extremely poor. He was so poor, he and his wife were living, they were wearing rags. They didn't even have enough to eat. They were, they were shaking from malnutrition. And Sudama was satisfied. He thought, well, if it's my destiny to be poor, it's my destiny to be poor. I'm just going to do honest labor, and if I don't get any money, I don't get any money. I'm not going to do anything dishonest in order to get wealth. But his wife said, listen, you're friends with God. He's your personal class friend. Ask him for some money. He said, I don't want to ask Krishna for any money. No, please. And she kept begging because she was thinking, my poor husband, he's so sick. He's wearing rags. And finally, you know, after your wife nags you enough, you say, okay, dear. So he said, okay. And he was thinking, well, 
this will be a good excuse to go see Krishna. So he's going to see Krishna, and the Vedic standard is that if you go to see somebody, you bring a gift. Of course, this was in the days before email and even in the days before telephone, when if you wanted to have some communication with someone, you had to physically take your body and move it from one location to another. And of course, people didn't do that all the time. And when you did that, you brought a gift. I mean, even in the West, that's there a little bit, the idea that if you visit someone's home, you bring them a gift, though it's not so much done anymore. I mean, the, the real regulation is that every time you come to the temple, one should bring the deity some gift, even a little rice or something like that. You see a saintly person, you bring a gift. That was the idea. You still see this in, among the Indians, even <coughs> Indians who've left India, that they really have this culture that if I see a saintly person or I see God, that I should bring some gift. But you don't see it so much in Western countries. It's there a little bit. I mean, I know if my family traveled a long distance to see someone that we only saw once or twice a year, we would bring some gift with us. But this was the culture. We certainly didn't do it when we saw our neighbors all the time or something like that. But anyway, this was the culture. But they had no gift because they were so poor they didn't even have anything for themselves. What to speak of? To give. So Sudama said, I've got to give Krishna something. And his wife said, well, I'll beg from the neighbors. And the neighbors weren't very generous. Or maybe the neighbors were also poor, we don't know. And all they gave them was the lowest quality of rice, what's called chipped rice. Broken rice. Wasn't even whole grains of rice, little pieces of rice. So very, very low quality, the leavings. So he just wrapped that up in a little cloth. And then he's going to Krishna's city of Dwarka, which literally means the city of doors or the city of gates. And as he's going, all he's thinking about is Krishna, how he went to school with Krishna, how wonderful Krishna was, and then he's just awed by the opulence of Dwarka because he was a Brahmana. They led him through all of these gates, all these doors, and he goes into... Krishna had so many palaces. He had personally 16,108 palaces in which he expanded himself, and he lived in each palace simultaneously. And the Brahmin went to the chief palace, the palace of Krishna and Rukmini. And as Krishna saw him coming from a distance, he came out to greet his friend and brings him into the palace. And everyone's kind of astonished that this Brahmana who's dressed in, in rags, and not only were his clothes torn, but even today in India, most people don't have washing machines. You know, if you wash your clothes, you wash them by hand. Now, if you wash your clothes by hand in a river and you don't use any laundry soap, do you know what your clothes become after a while? Gray. If you don't have any proper washing facility, your clothes don't, don't really turn out very clean. So his, his clothes were not very clean and they were dirty and he was really skinny. And, you know, Krishna's in this big palace and the servants are thinking, why is Krishna, you know, honoring this raggedy street beggar, it looks like. And, and not only that, Krishna seats him on his own bed. He's washing his feet. The chief goddess of fortune, Rukmini, is fanning him. And Krishna's talking about their childhood days together. And so Dhamma Brahman either forgot all about his gift, seeing Krishna, or else, even if he did think about it, he, he probably felt a little nervous, you know. I can't really give this to Some low-grade rice wrapped up in a and then Krishna said, I'm sure you brought something for me, didn't you? <laughs> it's funny because usually we don't do that. You know, usually if someone comes and they don't offer us a gift, 
I remember going to one festival program where they always offered all the speakers a gift at the end. And, but the last day I didn't feel well, so I didn't go to the going away ceremony. So everybody got a gift except for me. And I, I was never sure, should I go to them and say, hey, where's my gift? You know, I never did. So that's it's a little funny, isn't it? You know, if you just go and say, excuse me, um, it's my birthday, uh, but you didn't bring me anything. <laughs> Do you have anything? But Krishna said that. He said, you must have brought something. And Sudama just didn't want to say anything. Krishna took it. He took the bundle away from Sudama. He said, oh, just what I always wanted, chipped rice. <laughs> and he took one grain of rice and he ate it. I would imagine it wasn't cooked. How could he have traveled with cooked rice? I mean, it must, it must have been uncooked rice. Such nice. Let me have another piece. And Rukmini said, Stop. She said, This one one grain of rice is enough. And the Acharyas comment that if he'd eaten another grain, Rukmini would have had to leave Krishna's house and go live in Sudama's house. So she said, That's that's enough. And Krishna was so grateful that he decided he's we were saying, you were saying yesterday how humorous Krishna is. Now it's also interesting that Krishna didn't appear to give Sudama anything. Nothing. I mean, you would think that if you're, even externally from a material point of view, a very rich man with 16,108 palaces, giving away 13,000 cows from each palace every day, and your old school friend comes to see you in rags, you at least give him a new set of clothes. Right? You give him some gift to take home, but Krishna didn't appear to give him anything. Nothing. And he didn't say, um, you can give me something? He didn't ask for anything. He never said, you know, my wife actually asked me to come and ask you to kind of help us out because we're in poverty and maybe even alone if you don't want to give a gift. <laughs> he didn't ask for anything. He didn't ask for anything. Krishna didn't offer anything. And again, that's astonishing. I mean, I think for any of us, if our old childhood friend came and we saw they were destitute, we'd do something for them, wouldn't you? something, at least you'd offer them, you know, some of your clothes. Something. Krishna offered him nothing. And what's even more interesting is that when Sudama left, he was happy, which is a very nice lesson for us, because often we go to Krishna asking for things. Krishna, please give me this. Krishna, please give me that. And when he doesn't give, we're like, well, well wait a minute. I asked you. So Sudama wasn't thinking like that. Sudama was also grateful. As he was leaving Krishna's palace, he thought, I'm so glad that Krishna didn't give me anything. He said, obviously I'm an immature devotee. And if Krishna had given me anything, he knows that I would have forgotten him. I mean, some people forget Krishna when they're suffering. When they're suffering, they say, oh, there can't be a God. He doesn't love me. What's the use of this God? Why am I worshiping him? And they only worship Krishna when they're happy. And other people, when they get opulence, they forget. They say, well, why don't I need God anymore? I don't know if you, any of you know Kalangana from the manor who makes all those fancy sweets. So she and I were once taking a, a, a japa walk. We were chanting and walking. And this one woman comes up and she asks us directions for someplace. We say, why don't you follow us there? So she's walking with us and then dear Kalangana starts trying to convince this woman to chant Hare Krishna. And I felt actually kind of awkward. I'm like, why is she doing this? Anyway, she's, she's talking to this woman and saying, why don't you pray to God? And the woman said, but I don't have any problems. 
<laughs> I said, I'll pray to God when I have a problem. Right now I don't have any problems. So there's, there's many people who think like that. You know, either people, when they have problems, they neglect God. They say, what's the use of God if I have problems? And other people, when they don't have any problems, they neglect God. They say, I should only go to God when I have problems. So Sudama thought, I must be in that category. He thought, I must be in the category of people who will forget God if everything's going nice. So I'm so thankful I have problems and I have poverty. Thank you very much, Krishna. So this is the real attitude of the devotee. Of course, the Acharyas say that Sudama Brahmana had one material attachment. Guess what it was? He was attached to his renunciation. He, was, he had a little pride. He had a little pride in his renunciation. Oh, I'm so austere. I mean, right, Krishna? The, the world is so perverted that we're proud of our humility, you know? Isn't it? God, I'm such a humble person. <laughs> Sudama had this idea that I'm very renounced and I'm very austere. So when he got, then when he got home, it wasn't his home anymore. So imagine leaving the temple after the program and you go home and you go back to your, you want to sit with your back to the TV. And you, you go back to your place and it's a different place. It looked like the residence of the heavenly king Indra. It was all gardens and marble, and it was full of servants. And his wife comes out, and the Acharyas say, when she first came out, she looked as she did before, so he would recognize her. And as he sees her, she basically turns into a demigoddess. And then he goes into the palace, and he just sees that it's, it's unbelievable opulence. So this is also Krishna's humor, that apparently he gives Sudama nothing, and then he gives Sudama everything. And of course, Sudama wasn't bewildered by the opulence. He saw, it's interesting, Sudama saw his poverty as Krishna's prasadam, and he saw his wealth as Krishna's prasadam. Either way, he saw this is the mercy of the Lord. If one lives like this, one's life is perfect. If we see the difficulties in our life, this is Krishna's mercy. We see the good things in our life, this is Krishna's mercy. And either way, we say, how can I remember Krishna in this circumstance? So anyway, this is Krishna's gratitude that for Sudama's love, not really, it wasn't really an exchange like I pay Krishna a piece of rice and he gives me a palace. But for Sudama's love, he reciprocated that. Oh, I have so many stories here. Um, one is uh, that of Ramachandra. So any of you know the story of Ramachandra. Krishna's incarnation is Ram. They, he was exiled to the forest. His wife Sita was abducted by a demon, by a, a cannibal king, Ravana. And Ram went through a lot of difficulty to get Sita back. He ended up getting an army of monkeys because he was exiled <coughs> to the forest. So he had an army of monkeys and bears and different kinds of animals. And as he was going to make his attack on Ravana's kingdom, Ravana's brother, Babishana, said to Ravana, you should give Sita back to Ram. You shouldn't be stealing another man's wife. Just give Sita back to Ram and make peace. And Ravana said, I'm not going to do that. And Babishan kept insisting. In the point, at one point, Ravana, particularly Ravana's son, started threatening Babishan. And so Babishan left. Ravana said he effectively took sannyas at that point. Although he didn't, it wasn't like he actually took sannyas, because later on he became the king and he went back to his wife and children. But he left everything. He left the kingdom. Obviously, as the king's brother, he had a royal position. He left his family. He left everything. And he went to Ram and he said, My dear Ramachandra, 
I am now your servant. Please accept me. And what was interesting is that the rest of, Ra of Ram's army didn't want to accept him. You know, if the brother of your enemy <coughs> comes, you may think he's a... <coughs> enemy. You might think he's a spy. So they all said, you can't trust him. Don't accept him. And Ramachandra said, if someone even pretends to be a friend, I accept him. That was his gratitude. And of course, we see this with the story of Putina. That Putina was a witch who was sent to kill Krishna when he was a baby. And she dressed herself like a resident of the village. She dressed herself as, as a very attractive, motherly woman. And she came externally as if she were somebody with motherly affection to pick up Krishna. And she even offered her breast milk to suck, but she had smeared a poison on her breast. And Krishna accepted, oh, she's come as a mother. Even though her intention was to kill him because she had this uh, external guise as a mother, he accepted her. And after he, he, he killed her, he drank her milk, and when he drank her milk, he sucked out her life, but he let her be one of his eternal mothers in the spiritual world. So this is Krishna's gratitude. So a very good tactic. If you can't be a devotee, at least look like a devotee. So this is my policy. I figure that I don't know if I can be a devotee, but at least I can follow Putin's policy and dress like a devotee. <laughs> and I'm hoping that Krishna will be grateful for that. So that's actually amazing. It's actually amazing that Krishna is so grateful that even somebody who was an enemy but looked like a friend and, and, and came externally as a friend, that he accepted that. He accepted the good portion. What was, the, what was the good portion? There wasn't any good portion. The good portion was a sham. It was a, it was a farce. It was a veneer. But he accepted it as something good. Now, which of us would do that? But that's how grateful Krishna is. Actually, all of us have these same qualities of Krishna to a small degree. They're, all, they're within us as our natural spiritual constitution. Okay, I'm going to go on to dependable. So Rupa Goswami says, any person who's reliable in all circumstances is called dependable. So if we think of the most dependable, responsible person we know, they're probably not reliable in all circumstances. There's some circumstances where they'll say, sorry, I couldn't make it. I, we had an interesting meeting the other day where uh, Anjan Mastami, we were selling our, our books, which I'll, I'll show you at the end of the meeting. And at the first, we had two Janmasmi days on the actual day and then on a Sunday. So one devotee had said she was going to come and do something on the actual day, and she didn't show up because she was sick. And the person organizing it, when we had a meeting afterwards, he said she should have given at least two days' notice. That wasn't responsible. <laughs> I'm thinking, my diseases don't always give me two days' notice, you know. Okay, Ramila, on Saturday you're going to get sick, you know, pops up on my calendar. So... <laughs> You know, I don't know of anybody who's reliable in all circumstances, but Krishna is always reliable. He always protects his devotee. And you may say, well, wait a minute. You know, we see that sometimes Krishna's devotees end up in horrific circumstances. But Krishna always protects their spiritual relationship with him, which is really the real protection. And the, and the mature devotee feels safe in all circumstances. We were talking yesterday about security. So... We talked yesterday about the one pastime where Krishna appeared as Mohini to give nectar to the demigods. Right? When he appears this beautiful woman. Remember that from yesterday we were talking about? Now? And he enchants the demons and he gives the demigods the nectar. 
Just imagine you're one of those demigods, you know, on the order of Vishnu. You're churning the ocean of milk, and the nectar finally comes out, and then the demons get it. You know, how would you feel after all that? But then Krishna came and captured the nectar again for the demigods. Another story, which I'm sure you're familiar with, is that of Nisingadev, how the demoniac ruler, Hiranyakashipu, had gotten these benedictions that he wouldn't be killed in the day or the night or the inside or the outside or by anything living or non-living uh, in the sky, the land, or the sea. And still, Krishna as a Singade killed him by any man, by any animal. He took a form that wasn't a man, that wasn't an animal. He killed him with his nails, which cannot be said to be both living and dead. He killed him on his lap, which is not the land, the sea, or the sky. He killed him in the doorway, which is not the inside or the outside. He killed him at twilight, which is not the day or the night. So he's so dependable that he killed this demon. At the same time, he kept all of his benedictions. Uh, there's, there's so many other stories that seem to pick up on this theme. Any of you study Macbeth? Were you in school? Shakespeare's Macbeth? So Macbeth got these benedictions from the witches that uh, he wouldn't be killed by any man born of a woman and that he wouldn't be killed until the forest came up to his castle. So he thought he was invulnerable and he engaged in a lot of murder and mayhem in order to secure the throne. And finally his enemies had enough of him and when they were attacking his castle they cut down tree branches and held them in front of them as camouflage and one of his soldiers came and said, the forest has come up to the castle. And he thought, uh-oh. <laughs> and then finally he was in battle with his main enemy, Duncan. And he said, I'm not afraid of you. I can't be killed by any man born of a woman. He said, I was from my mother's womb untimely ripped. And then Macbeth goes, whoops. And then, of course, he was killed. So this kind of theme that somebody has some benediction and yet they're, uh, the benediction holds and yet they're killed is there even in Shakespeare. But Nisingade was the master of this. So he can be dependent, depended on to vanquish the evildoers even if they're seemingly invulnerable. Another really nice example of Krishna being dependable is in the battle of Kurukshetra. So at one point in, during the battle, there was this gentleman called Jayadrath. And Jayadrath had a boon that for one day he could hold off four of the Pandava brothers. Now there was one day in the battle where Arjuna went to a far side of the battlefield and his four brothers were fighting without him. On that day, the crews decided to have what kind of formation? Who knows Mahabharata? Yes, the circle formation. So they put their armies in a circle formation, and the only person who knew how to fight against the circle formation was Arjuna, and he was on the other side of the battlefield. So there was another person who knew, and that was Arjuna's son, Abhimanyu. But Abhimanyu didn't know the whole science. He knew how to break into the circle formation, but he didn't know how to get back out of it again. And he told his uncles, he said, I can help you get in, but I can't help you get out. They said, well, what we'll do is you break in, kind of like the wedge of a plow, and we'll follow behind you. And we'll, we'll open up the circle as, as a wedge going in. And then we'll all be able to defeat the crews and come back out again. I said, okay, fair enough. So Abhimanyu starts to go in, but as the four Pandava brothers came behind him, Jayadrath got behind Abhimanyu. And Jayadrath had this benediction that for one day he could stop four of the Pandavas. So that was the day. And he stopped them from entering. So Abhimanyu went in alone. 
And as he went into the circle, the circle closed behind him. And no one else knew how to enter. And of course, he didn't know how to get out. And once he got in, there was an unfair fight. In those days, they fought according to principles. Not like modern warfare. Modern warfare, they, have, they fight in what's called Rakshasa style. They fight at night. They fight against civilians and so forth. And it was sometimes done in ancient times, but not generally. So Abhimanyu could fight personally against 10,000 people. And he, but he was attacked by seven warriors who could each fight against 10,000 people. So they surrounded him, and he fought valiantly for a very long time, but since it was a fight of seven to one, he was eventually defeated and killed. When his father Arjuna found out about this, uh, instead, of being, instead of wanting to avenge against those seven, he decided the main person he wanted to avenge was Jayadrath, because he said Jayadrath prevented Abhimanyu from getting any help. That when Abhimanyu was assaulted by seven warriors, he should have been able to call for another six warriors on his side to come and help. And Jayadrath had prevented the help from coming. Therefore, it was Jayadrath who prevented it from being a fair fight. He said, I take a vow that by sunset tomorrow I'm going to kill Jayadrath or I myself will enter into the fire. And Krishna told him, you shouldn't take vows like this. He said, now you've done it, you know, but in the future don't take these kind of vows. And the other side were very happy because Arjuna was their main problem. And they thought if he kills himself, then, you know, the war is over, basically. It's Arjuna and Bhima, and they thought, you know, if Arjuna's dead. So the, the crew army decided the next day that they were going to concentrate all of their efforts into protect, protecting Jayadrath. They thought, why attack the Pandavas? Just protect Jayadrath, and then the Pandavas will self-destruct. No problem. So it was very difficult. I mean, Arjuna had to go through the whole Kuru army. And at one point during the day, his horses got tired. And Krishna created a lake in the middle of the battlefield and he stopped the chariot and took care of the horses and gave them water. You know, meanwhile, the day is going on and Arjuna had said if he didn't kill Jayadrath by sundown that he would enter into fire. And finally, finally, at the end of the day, they get through the whole army of the crews with millions and millions of people. And there's Jayadrath. And of course, he's still protected by all these soldiers. And then Krishna created an illusion of the sunset <coughs> You know, it was very close to sunset. Krishna created an illusion that the sun set. And as soon as he did that, then the Kuru warriors relaxed their vigilance. Oh, Arjuna's now got to enter fire, end of his vow, and they stopped protecting Jayadra. And just at that moment, Krishna showed that the sun hadn't set. They didn't have time to rekindle their guard, and, and Arjuna was able to kill Jayadra. So Krishna's very dependable. He makes sure that his devotees are protected even when they do foolish things. That doesn't mean you should intentionally do something foolish. And Krishna did chastise Arjuna for this. He also chastised Brahma for giving Hiranyakashipu those benedictions. It's in the Bhagavatam. He said, don't give demons benedictions like this. Again, it causes trouble for the whole universe. Then we're going to look at Krishna's quality of compassion. And Rupa Goswami defines this as a person who is unable to bear another's distress is called compassionate. We were talking yesterday about why there's suffering in the world. Really, Krishna cannot bear the fact that we're suffering. In one sense, we're not really suffering at all. This whole material existence is like a dream. And in a dream, if someone's chasing you with a gun, or if in a dream you're sick, you're not actually sick. You're not actually being chased with a gun. It's an illusion. So none of the so-called suffering that we have in this world is really touching us. 
Of course, that doesn't do you a whole lot of good when you're an illusion. You know, if you're in the dream and you believe the dream is real, it doesn't help you, the fact that it's a dream. You're experiencing it as if it's real. So when we're in illusion, we're experiencing our suffering as if it's real, especially physical pain. You know, if I just say to you, physical pain isn't real, it doesn't help very much. Of course, I noticed there's a gentleman downstairs that teaches uh, hypnotherapy. Oh, that's you. <laughs> oh, nice to meet you. Have you ever used hypnotherapy for pain relief? Constantly. Constantly. So... Uh, I met a, a medical doctor who had surgical operation with just hypnosis. She showed me all the articles about it. And, and I personally went through childbirth with hypnosis. And I had literally zero pain in childbirth. So I, my first child, I tried all the different breathing techniques and stuff, and it helped. But it wasn't really what I was looking for. And when, when my second baby, I read where Prabhupada said that even materially, a man can situate his mind in such a way that he can undergo a surgical operation without anesthesia. And I said, I want to do that. <laughs> and I did it. I did it. And, and since then I've taught many, many ladies how to go through labor with hypnosis. So the idea is that if you can detach your mind, then all of a sudden there's no pain, which shows that the pain is an illusion. Now, as soon as you become detached, there's no pain. It's quite interesting. What's also interesting about doing that is all of a sudden you become aware of what's really happening, but that's a whole other discussion. Anyway, so Krishna is really very, very compassionate. And he wants us to get rid of this pain of illusion. Of course, just doing it through hypnosis isn't terribly practical because I don't think any of us would want to stay in a hypnotic trance 24 hours a day. Right? That would be a little, a little awkward. I mean, there are certainly yogis who've done that. That they put themselves in yogic trance and they stay away from society and they stay in the Himalayas and they're simply in a trance all of the time. So our process, of course, is that we become free from the pain of this material world by becoming absorbed in Krishna, which was the whole beginning of this talk. Then we become absorbed in Krishna's qualities. When we become absorbed in Krishna, we naturally become detached from the material world. And when you're detached from the material world, guess what? All the suffering evaporates because it's not really there. It's not really there. The suffering we have in this material world is very much like the suffering we feel when we watch a movie of somebody suffering. If you go to the movie theater and the character is suffering, you feel pain. Right? You all have this experience? You read a book and the character is suffering and you feel suffering. Just by association. We can understand that all of our suffering is due to attachment. Just like right now in Dublin, so many people are dying. And I don't mean this in a callous way, but we don't really care. And, 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 right? Well, you drive down the street and there's an accident and you see someone's going into the ambulance. If you don't know the person, you don't feel any pain. I mean, if we did, it would, life would be almost unbearable. If every time you looked at the newspaper, you know, you were crying over each person that died in an earthquake and each person that died in the boat capsize or whatever it is. But if you drive past and it's your daughter in the accident, or your mother, or your sister, or your best friend, or even your dog, then you're devastated. You know, if it's your dog that's hit by a car, you can't go to work the next day. Isn't it? So what's the pain coming from? Attachment. All of our suffering is due to attachment. 
It's, it's not actually there. And it's just some electricity in the, in the brain. So the, Krishna is very compassionate upon our suffering. He wants to free us from suffering. Not necessarily by changing the electrical impulses in the brain, but by getting us to actual spiritual awareness. It's not that Krishna is interested in changing our suffering just by making the dream very nice. But he's interested in freeing our suffering by having us wake up. And, and Krishna is very much engaged in this. He's coming again and again and again and again and again. Just like there's a book downstairs, Holy Jail, about devotees who preach in the prison. And I've often thought, you know, why would anybody want to preach in a prison? But Krishna's doing that all the time. He's coming to the prison of this world just to help us. He doesn't have the attitude that, oh, those are criminals, they deserve to be there. No, he actually wants to help us. And there's so many examples of that. I mean, Krishna coming to the world to preach, the devotees who come to the world to preach, um, one example in Krishna Leela is Krishna marrying all the princesses that were kidnapped by Bomasura. So in that society, if a woman had a relationship with a man, nobody would marry her. And it would be pretty tough if we did that in modern society. But in those days, that was the standard. And the, the reason that that was the standard is very simple according to biology. Because women will naturally take care of their children. When, when a woman is pregnant, there are chemicals released in her body that induce her to take care of the children. When she's nursing the child, there's chemicals released in her body that induce her to take care of the children. But the man doesn't have that kind of chemical inclination. So why does a man take care of his children? Well, one reason is he's convinced that they're his children. And how is he going to be convinced that they're his children? The woman knows that it's her child unless she was unconscious during the delivery. How does the man know that they're his children? So therefore, in every society the sexual purity of the women was very much stressed. Why? So the man would take care of her. So he'd feel some sense, oh, this is my child, this is my wife, yes, I want to take care. You know, a lot of what we've done in modern society, is we've destroyed a lot of the impetus for people to be responsible and moral. So there was this high stress, of course there was high stress placed on the man's being celibate before marriage also not only the woman, but it was very high stress on woman's purity. So if the woman had been with another man, nobody would marry her. Again, that was for the benefit of the women. And that way the man was much more likely to stick around and take care of the children and take care of his wife. And nowadays people just okay, go get welfare from the government or just go have an abortion or whatever. Why should I care? So this one demon had kidnapped thousands of women. And when Krishna went to rescue them, him, they all wanted to marry him. And in those days, of course, it wasn't even that long ago, it was legal in many parts of the world, but in those days a man could marry more than one wife. And Krishna said, yes, I accept you. He didn't say, no, you're social outcasts. There was no consideration like that. So very compassionate. And of course, we have the story of Nityananda saving Jaghai and Madhai, um, Balaram, who became the guru of Duryodhana, which I'm not going to tell those stories in, in depth. But there were so many stories of Krishna's compassion. And really, uh, any of us conditioned souls taking up spiritual life is Krishna's compassion. It's Krishna's kindness. It's Krishna's coming to the prison and saying, come home. 
Some other traits that I, that I like that I'm not going to talk about in depth. Uh, one is that Krishna is a very meticulous dresser. He always likes to be very well dressed. In fact, Krishna gets dressed many times during the day, even in our temples. We generally dress Krishna at least twice a day in different clothes. And if you read through the accounts of Krishna's Eightfold Pastimes, his Astakali Alila, he's getting dressed several times a day in different outfits, many, many times a day. And it's always, you know, the right jewelry and the right this. And even before he fights with a demon, before he jumps in the lake to kill, not to kill, to chastise Kaliya, he adjusts his belt and he puts his curls up in his turban and fixes his turban and makes sure everything is, you know, just <laughs> right. And before he fights with the wrestlers, also, you know, everything is going to be perfect. He's also expert at dressing others. Uh, he's expert at dressing Radharani and decorating her in various ways. So Krishna's expert at dressing himself and expert at dressing others. One of his qualities. Another quality that I really like is all honorable. And this is a quote from the Nectar Devotion. It says, When Krishna was living at Dwarka, demigods like Lord Shiva, Lord Brahma, Indra, the king of heaven, and many others used to come and visit him. The doorkeeper, who had to manage the entrance of all these demigods, one very busy day, said, My dear Lord Brahma and Lord Shiva, please sit down on this bench and wait. My dear Indra, please desist from reading your prayers. This is creating a disturbance. Please wait silently. My dear Varuna, please go away. And my dear demigods, do not waste your time uselessly. Krishna is very busy. He cannot see you. So, of course, in this world, there are many people who imitate this, like I'm trying to get my visa to Russia. And they're acting like this. I'm very sorry. We don't have time for you. You have to apply in your own country. Right? You can't apply in Ireland. But you can only apply 45 days in advance. Well, I'm not in my country 45 days in advance. Well, very sorry. Then you have to leave. You know, I remember once waiting in the queue for the Russian embassy in London, and I started there at about 7 in the morning. And after waiting for four hours, they said, sorry, now the embassy's closed. You'll have to leave. So people try to imitate this honorable quality of Krishna by saying, no, I'm not, I'm very busy, I don't have time for little insignificant people like you. But that's, Krishna is so busy that he doesn't have time even to see Brahma and Shiva. And as you were mentioning, Krishna playing his flutes, there are, uh, most of the qualities of Krishna are also existent in us, although to a minute degree. So these qualities of being compassionate, being dependable, being grateful, these are all our qualities. I mean, you may sometimes think that the emphasis on humility means that we go around saying how awful we are. But just the other day, listening to a lecture from Prabhupada, where he was saying that really we have all good qualities, that our natural state is to have all good qualities. It's just that this becomes covered. <coughs> We're like a diamond that's fallen into the sewer, you know, and the sewer stuff has gotten caked on. But all of our so-called bad qualities are really just artificial. I remember many, many years ago, that since like 33 years ago, I got in an argument with one devotee in the hallway of a temple. The temple president heard us arguing and calls me into his office. And he says, Ormila, you should be humble. I said, but Prabhu, I'm not humble. <laughs> he said, yes, you are. Your arrogance is artificial. I said, okay. So really, we have all good qualities. Our, our lust, greed, envy, illusion... That, that's all just an artificial covering. So we can lament the fact that we've jumped in the sewer and been covered with all these qualities. That we should lament. That, that I'm sorry, Krishna, that I intentionally came to this world, that I intentionally covered myself with these bad qualities. But we can also rejoice in the fact that we're little tiny gods. 
we have the, the qualities of God in a minute degree. We're, we're really wonderful, wonderful, wonderful living beings, full of all good qualities forever. And we, have, we have almost all the qualities of God, almost all the qualities, a small extent, uh, but still, not unlimited. We're not unlimitedly compassionate. We're not unlimitedly dependable. We're not unlimitedly grateful, but we are perfectly grateful and perfectly dependable and perfectly compassionate in our real state. But there are some qualities of God that we don't have. In fact, there are some qualities of God which only Krishna manifests and the other forms of Godhead do not manifest. Now, the other forms of God, this is very important, the other forms of Godhead have these qualities, but they never manifest them. Just like when you're at work, there are certain aspects of your personality that you never manifest. It's not that you don't have those personality, those aspects of your personality, but you never exhibit them in that environment. It would be inappropriate. So in Krishna's other incarnations, he doesn't manifest four of his qualities. He only manifests them as Krishna. He has them. It's not that all the incarnations of Krishna are all, they're all Krishna. But still, as Krishna, he only manifests these four. Therefore, we say, the worship of Krishna is higher. And the relationship with Krishna is higher. It's on a more intimate level. So these four, one of them is that he attracts all the living entities all over the universes by playing his flute. And of course, many other living entities play flutes. It says that all the cowherd boys also play flutes. That's how they herd their cows. Many people on this planet even play flutes. But who can attract everyone all over the universe by playing their flute? There's some imitation of this in ordinary musicians. You know, I don't know if very many of you are old enough to remember when the Beatles got up on stage and, you know, everybody was fainting. So they just get up and, you know, I want to hold your hand. Whoa! <laughs> you know, and everybody was finished. Or whatever, Elvis Presley or whoever's the latest, latest, greatest, or who is that one who died recently? Michael Jackson. People like that where just by singing, just by singing or just by playing some instrument, People become overwhelmed with attraction. They want to thread from their cloth and, you know, just to touch them, just to see them. <laughs> but so they don't attract the whole universe. Not everybody was attracted by the Beatles. There were some people who remained unmoved. Right? It's not that as soon as they sang, I want to hold your hand, that every single person in the universe went, wow. <laughs> there were a lot of people who just said, huh? What's the noise about? <laughs> but when Krishna plays his flute, everybody becomes attracted. And here's a nice description. The sound vibration created by the flute of Krishna wonderfully stopped Lord Shiva from playing his din-din drum. The same flute has caused the four kumaras to become disturbed in their meditation. It has caused Lord Brahma, who is sitting on the lotus flower for the creative function, to become astonished. And Ananda Dev, who is calmly holding all the planets on his hood, was moving in this way and that through the transcendental vibration from Krishna's flute. So he's supposed to keep the planet steady, you know, he's just moving. <laughs> Which penetrated through the coverings of this universe and reached to the spiritual sky. So Krishna is the original from which all these other musicians are just little copies. Another, past, another quality of Krishna that only Krishna manifests is the extraordinary variety of his pastimes. So, you know, Matsya Avatar has just basically one or two pastimes. Korma Avatar has one or two pastimes. Vamandeva has one or two pastimes. But Krishna has an unlimited variety of pastimes. And, and extraordinary pastimes like Raslila. No other incarnation has Raslila. 
Krishna's childhood pastimes, which are very sweet. Of course, Lord Ramachandra also has childhood pastimes. But Krishna's childhood pastimes are particularly sweet. His stealing the butter and the yogurt, his catching the tail of a calf, his pulling down the, the two trees. Another unique attribute is the surrounded by devotees who are on these platforms of intimate love. Again, all the other incarnations have wonderful devotees. I mean, Hanuman, what a wonderful devotee of Lord Ramachandra. But only Krishna is surrounded by, for example, so many devotees in conjugal love. Ramachandra, there's only Sita. Right? Narayan has three consorts. So Krishna has billions and billions and billions of consorts. And so many devotees who are in the mood of his mother and father and so many intimate friends who play with him as equals. The cowherd boys, they say, I'm stronger than you, Krishna. And I was really the one holding up Govardhan. <laughs> and then incredible beauty. So, of course, all incarnations of Krishna are astonishingly beautiful. But the beauty of Krishna is so intense that the other incarnations are attracted to Krishna's beauty. And there's a story of Mahavishnu who stole the sons of a Brahmana in order to see Krishna and see his beauty. So we've done a meditation now for about an hour on just a few of Krishna's qualities, about maybe five or six of Krishna's 64 qualities. And each of these qualities we could have meditated on for a day or a week, just one of these qualities. We could have written a whole book on Krishna being grateful or Krishna being dependable. So this is ample uh, fodder for us to meditate on during the course, Mama Nusma Midya Cha, while we're in the various aspects of our lives, for us to meditate on, so that gradually we become attracted to Krishna. And as we become attracted to Krishna, what happens? We develop our our love, which develops our spiritual body. And dissolves our material, mental body, which has been the cause of our taking one lifetime after another. So we, we dissolve the cause of reincarnation and we again revive our real self. So I do have something I want to show you, but we have a few minutes. I can't end too late today because we still have to do the Russian visa stuff, right? I don't know why they make it so hard to enter their country. It's like they don't want anybody coming. It is a nice country. but Any questions, comments, or discussions on anything? Yes, sir. Uh, uh, pride of the humility and renunciation, um, and yet his renunciation was not artificial or real renunciation. Um, I just found that a bit curious that you know you, you could understand somebody's power of renunciation if there was some you know done some kind of some kind of art, something artificial going on, but it was renunciation is not artificial. But he was a, it was more that he was attached to it. Um, the idea is to just be attached to whatever will make Krishna happy. That, that's love. I mean, the other example is Yudhisthira. Yudhisthira was very attached to being an honest person. He, in other words, he was attached to his reputation as an honest person. And when it came down to, will you do something to, for Krishna that may harm your reputation? Or would you do something that keeps your reputation? He wasn't sure. And am I willing to sacrifice my reputation as an honest man for this for the sake of pleasing Krishna? So if I if I really love somebody, especially somebody who's worthy of absolute love, I mean there is there's no conditioned jiva that's worthy of absolute love. 
on the material platform. If you, if you totally give your heart to another conditioned soul, you'll be disappointed. If you say, I'm going to totally give my heart to my child, I'm going to totally give my heart to my wife, I'm going to totally give my heart to my husband, I guarantee you, you'll be disappointed. There, if you totally give your heart to Krishna, you won't be disappointed. He's worthy of totally giving one's heart to. Of course, once you totally give your heart to Krishna, then you totally love everybody else as a part of Krishna. But there's some hesitancy there. You know, I want to serve Krishna, but I don't, but, you know, I don't want to serve Krishna if I have to have money. I only want to serve Krishna if I can be renounced. So he was more attached to his renunciation. It was a block. Well, if he has a block, I've noticed. And there we go. <laughs> but Krishna is so kind that he takes away our blocks to, his, to loving him. Because he knows that on one level we don't really want to have those blocks. You know, we're all saying, Krishna, Krishna, I want to love you and I want to love you absolutely. I, I really want that. I, I'm, I'm tired of giving that love that's meant to, for you to my car and my dog and my you know, closet full of clothes or whatever, or my husband, or, and being unsatisfied to my country, to my own body. I really want to give it to you. And we need to, if we want to find perfection in bhakti yoga, we need to come to a point where we can say honestly, honestly, not falsely, Krishna, please remove whatever blocks there are between, between us. And often when we start the spiritual path, we say that falsely. We say, Krishna, I just want to become pure. Just take away any of my material attachments. And Krishna takes one of your material attachments. He doesn't even take it away. He just kind of shakes it a little. And goes, no! <laughs> Forget it! So most of us have tried that. And maybe we've tried it twice. I don't think very many people have tried it more than twice. And after a while you say, uh, I don't think I'm going to pray like that anymore. But we, we do need to get to a point if we want to become pure devotees of Krishna, if we want to enter in the spiritual world, if we want to find perfection in bhakti yoga, we do need to get to a point where we can ask that genuinely, without fear. That I don't know what that's going to mean. You know, Krishna, please take away whatever's coming between you and me. And I don't know what that'll mean. I, I don't know what will happen. I don't know what you'll do, but just whatever you do, you do it. And, and Krishna's generally, by the way, quite gentle about it. Just like the way he did it with Sudama. It was fun. He wasn't cruel. I mean, it was such a fun, humorous way that Krishna took away that block between him and Sudama. Okay, here's a palace. Now be a devotee in the palace. Okay. Oh, and it was just there. Krishna didn't say, would you like to have a palace? And Sudama said, well, you know, I don't know. I'm actually kind of happy with my rags and was just there. Here it is. Or with you to steer. I mean, even that, Krishna said, come on, you to steer. <coughs> Tell a lie from me. Because he knew that was his attachment. His attachment was that I am completely honest all the time. I mean, could any of us say that? Anybody here willing to say that we're 100% truthful all the time? And you to had this, this idea. I am 100% truthful all the time. Like people who have this perfect attendance at school. I never won any of those. I, I had problems with my health and I couldn't ever, I was always jealous. I was like, man, you know, they're healthy. You know, of course they can do it. That's the per perfect attendance at school. I had one sannyasi in our movement who was always at Mangalartik early. 
And I used to wonder, how does he do that? And then one day he said, yeah, when I was a student, every year I got the award for perfect attendance. I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but one day he was late because you get, because it was a hurricane. <laughs> Literally, where we lived, there was a hurricane. And it knocked down all the trees, and it took him so long to walk over the trees to get to the temple, you know. So he had one day, Krishna took away his perfect attendance record. So Krishna has his, his very wonderful ways of breaking those blocks. Of course, if we're not cooperative, and we're still asking him to take the blocks away, it may be a little bit more forceful. But if we don't like the forcefulness, just be cooperative. I mean, it's, it's really pretty simple. Just listening today to a podcast from Shiva Ramaraj, and he was saying how wonderful it is when the spiritual master can say to the disciple, this is your problem, and this is what you should do about it. And the disciple says, yes, and does it. And how many people do that? Very, very very few. But what a wonderful thing. And Krishna likes that too. I mean, you can try it. You can try it. It's, it's a wonderful experience. Seriously. You go to Krishna and you say, My dear Lord, please show me what is the block between me and you that I need to take care of next. Please show me. However you want to show me. And then I'll deal with it. And if that scares you, if this thinking about that, you go, My what will happen? Then my suggestion is first pray for courage because I don't think you should make that prayer artificially. I don't think you should do anything artificially. Prabhupada says anything artificial is not good. So if the thought of doing that terrifies you, then please pray for courage. But once you have the courage, you make that prayer. Krishna, please show me what it is next that I need to let go of. I guarantee you that he will show you. And he'll probably show you fairly quickly. You will say, how will I know it's Krishna? And I'll tell you, you'll know. It will be completely, obviously clear that it's Krishna. You'll know, he'll make it very clear. And then watch how you respond. Do you respond? You'll know it's Krishna. Do you say, oh, okay, I'll do that. Or do you think, I can't let go of that. Maybe it wasn't really Krishna. That's too hard. I couldn't possibly let go of that. Oh, that's too easy. That couldn't really be a problem. Or if I let go of that, so many things would happen. This thing would happen. That thing would happen. The other thing would happen. All these terrible <clears throat> things would happen. How do we respond? So, so notice that. And if you're finding that as Krishna reveals to you that your response is not very cooperative, then you wonder why Krishna sometimes tugs really hard at our attachments or, or you know, makes things a little uncomfortable for us so that we'll let go of our attachments. So I see it more like that. But we really do need to be willing. Krishna is not going to take away our attachments by force against our will. He just doesn't operate. We were talking about this yesterday. It's not the way he operates. I mean, no doctor would do that. No doctor will barge into your house in the middle of the night and say, you're getting a test to see if you have cancer. You, know, they just, you have to voluntarily go to the hospital and take the test. And if you voluntarily go and take the test and he says, oh, look, you have a brain tumor. You know, you're going to die in six months unless we operate. You're not going to go into your house in the middle of the night and operate against your will. Right? You know, no doctor's going to break into your house and put the chloroform on you. and You've got to voluntarily go. So Krishna's like that. Krishna will show you, if we're chanting Hare Krishna, if you're in the process, he'll show you, here's the problem. Like he did with Arjuna. He said, Arjuna, 
here's your problem. And then he said, okay, now I've explained everything to you now. Do what you want to do. What do you want to do? He said, if you surrender to me, you'll be happy. You'll get everything. If you don't surrender to me, you'll, you'll suffer. So what do you want to do? And here's your problem. And then Arjuna says, okay, I surrender. Then Krishna took care. So long. Okay, I want to share something with you.